Our second lesson is from the fourth chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, beginning at the first verse. While Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came to them, much annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming that in Jesus there is the resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and they numbered about 5,000. The next day their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. When they had made the prisoners stand in their midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are questioned today because of a good deed done to someone who was sick and are asked how this man came to be healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. It has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Amen. I know some of you don't care, and some of you are emotionally involved. I'm talking about March Madness. And with all these basketball games, I was reminded of something that took place in my life long ago when I still played the game. I was a college freshman in Iowa. My roommate was born and raised in the town where our school was located, Decorah, Iowa, Luther College, if you want to know. And our basketball coach worked it out so that we could room together, this boy from Northern Virginia and this boy from Decorah. Those of us who came from different places referred to the students like my roommate as townies because they lived in town. They were raised in town. And let me tell you, it was wonderful having a townie for a roommate. My family lived not about, but exactly 988 miles away. I knew that because I made the trip twice each year in my Chevy Impala Supersport. Going home on weekends was not an option. But I did get to go to my townies, my townie roommate's home on many occasions. It was a blessing to get out of the dorm for a lazy Saturday afternoon or a Sunday evening to taste some home-cooked food instead of the meal served in the cafeteria. My father was still in the army. Getting out to see me was difficult, but they did come out to see the firstborn son that very first homecoming weekend of my freshman year. And my roommates parents had all of my family over for dinner. It was a great evening, good fellowship, great Iowa food. Later that week, I saw my roommate's mother in town, and I thanked her for showing such hospitality to my parents and my two younger brothers. And she said, oh, Bruce, it was really nothing. 
Besides, they're so common. Now, I was startled. Because back east, at least in my high school, calling someone common was an insult. So I wondered, what in the world did my family do that I didn't see that made this woman so upset that she would call them common? So I asked her, why would you say that? And she said, well, why wouldn't I? They're common. (laughs) I tried to keep my cool, but it wasn't easy. I mean, she's insulting my family, you know. I said, did they, did they do something wrong? Did they say something to hurt your feelings? Then she looked at me, what's wrong with you, Bruce? Your family's just as common as they can be. At this point, I was ready to pull out my much longer hair. I told her I was confused. She had said that my family, they were nice people. But then she called them common. I said, how can you compliment them in one breath and then insult them in the next? And she almost shouted back to me, insult them? How in the world did I insult your family? I said, you called them common. And that's not a compliment, you know. That's when she started laughing. And that made me angrier. And when she was done chuckling, she said, Bruce, around here, common is a compliment. Call somebody common, it means they're ordinary people. They don't have their noses stuck in the air. You call somebody common because they're meat and potatoes kind of people. I was so nervous getting ready for your parents' visit. Your dad's an officer in the Pentagon. I'd never had anybody like that in my little house before. But they got here, and they were just regular people like the rest of us. They were real nice. They were common. So then it was my turn to laugh. And when I was done, I said, well, you don't call somebody common where I'm from unless you're ready to put up your fists. And then we had a good laugh, the two of us, over our misunderstanding. It is so important to know, to know what words mean and how they are used. Uh, my brief experience with my roommate's mom almost got us into trouble with one another because the word common had such different implications, such radically different meanings from Fairfax, Virginia to Decorah, Iowa. So I suggest that in today's world, we need to remember that we Christians use a lot of words that make perfect sense to us, but words that don't necessarily mean anything to non-believers or people who weren't raised in the church. And sometimes these words can become obstacles when it comes to leading people to Christ and sharing the love of God that we know through his son Jesus. And a lot of these words, they're just nomenclature, just words that many of us grew up with. I mean, lots of you grew up with these words. They weren't strange words to you. Narthex, vestibule, nave, transept, chancel, parsonage, sacristy. That was part of your everyday vocabulary. It was for me. And then other words, such as preface, curiae, nunc dementis, collect, were equally familiar to Christians just a generation ago. But if you ask many people, young people and not-so-young people who weren't raised in the church to define these words, you might just get some blank stares or shrugged shoulders. And sometimes it's beyond the nomenclature. It has to do with very important, profound theological truths. Words like incarnation, atonement, 
ubiquity. (laughs) And yes, even salvation can be one of those words. Now, most Christians, and I'm sure all of you, know that salvation is what Jesus has done for us, that we have salvation because of his perfect work on the cross. But to your average non-church-going person at work, at school, in your neighborhood, salvation can be a mystery, a confusing word. It might mean nothing to them at all. Well, salvation means being saved, to be saved. But I think all of us should reflect this Lenten season from what exactly are we saved? That's our meditation today. And as I said during announcements, next week we're going to be spending time looking at why we are saved, for what purpose Jesus saves us. So we are saved from and we are saved for. Those are our themes for today and next week. About the same time I was playing college ball, (laughs) so many years ago, airport security wasn't exactly what it is today. Do you remember? Do you remember how people would move so freely throughout airports? I remember a Jesus freak. That's what we called them. Coming up and asking me at an airport, Brother, are you saved? He was sincere. I know that. And maybe it happened to you. But the first time I was asked that question at an airport where people move freely from gate to gate, I wasn't exactly sure what I should say. So I responded, well, I think so. And then that Jesus freak, that man who loved the Lord and was there witnessing at the airport, shouted back at me, you think so? Well, you better know, because if you don't, You're going to burn in hell forever. I mean, he's shouting this at me. That got my attention. And then he started giving me a bunch of pamphlets, and I'm trying to keep them from falling on the ground, on the floor. And as he's shoving them in my hands, he says to me, the only way you're going to get saved is confess your sins to God and ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Oh, I said, oh, well, that's why you're talking about. I do confess my sins to God. I do love Jesus. But he really wasn't interested in what I had to say. He was already walking away, looking for the next person to save, I suppose. I know he was sincere. We don't have that kind of freedom to move around airports these days, do we? Even so, after you've successfully navigated TSA and made it to your gate... I don't recommend to any of you his methodology when it comes to leading people to Christ. So much has changed in the last 40, 50 years, in the world, in our airports, even in the church. But research project after research project, survey after survey, tells us that one thing hasn't changed much in all these years. And that's the most effective way of leading people to faith in Jesus Christ. It's when ordinary people like you share your faith with people you already know. People who already trust you. People who are already in a relationship with you. That's the most effective way of leading people to Christ. 
It's not cold calling on doors on a Saturday morning. It's not confronting people at bus stations or airports. It's when ordinary people like you and me simply share our faith with people God has put in our lives without condemning them for not being a Christian already and certainly without threatening them with the fires of hell. Salvation. Being saved. We Christians, humbly, boldly, and unapologetically believe that in Christ and Christ alone is salvation. It's the same message that Peter preached. You heard it in Acts chapter 4. The word of the Lord tells us that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save us. But what does that mean? From what exactly does God save us through his precious son? Well, both our lessons that Tim read from Second Samuel and in the Acts of the Apostles, we uh, can come to know and understand what it means to be saved. Jesus saves us from the certainty, the reality of death. This death surrounds us. Every single person, yes, is going to die someday, unless, of course, Jesus comes before they breathe their last. But this death that we will all die is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Science teaches us that when death comes, we cease living and breathing as organisms. Our hearts stop beating. There's no more brain activity, no more cerebral function. And in that moment, we begin to die and decay at once. But the Bible tells us something more about death. You see, it's not just a matter of the cessation of breathing or brain waves. It's more than that. The Word of God reminds us that death is a spiritual reality ah, that is already at work in the world. It's already present. It's already here. Now. Paul said in Romans 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. You see, death is not just the so-called natural end of life as we know it. Death is what has happened already because of our sin. Because of our true condition. This uh, spiritual disease, if you will. You and I are sinners in need of the life and forgiveness that only Jesus Christ can give. And so are your classmates and your co-workers and your neighbors and your friends. Have you heard these words before from 1 John? I hope so. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. For if we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. If we say we have no sin, we make him a liar. Who is John talking about here? Whom do we make a liar? Well, we're telling God, you lie if we say we have no sin. We're saying to our Father in heaven that we know better than you. We're no sinners. How dare you say such a thing, you liar? And of course, God is truth. And he knows who we are. Now listen to what is probably the 
best-known verse in all of Scripture. I know many of you learned it in your youth. It's written on your hearts. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's John 3.16. You know that. You see, without a Savior, without the gift of salvation, without being saved, we are already perishing. And the good news is God doesn't want that. God loves us. God wants us to live. And he wants us to live with him now. And he wants us to live with him eternally. Jesus came to do this saving. He did it on the cross. He did it for you. He did it for me. We cannot save ourselves. Only God can accomplish this. And he has done what is necessary for sinners like us to be with him now and always. Many very intelligent, a highly successful businessmen and businesswomen have achieved everything they set out to accomplish in life. They've worked hard, and they have a lot. They seem to have it all. By conventional standards, they haven't just dreamed the American dream, they've lived it. Nice cars, nice homes, nice cabin in the mountains, nice timeshare in Maui, nice country club membership, nice toys, nice wardrobe. Yet without God, the most important thing is still missing because without God, without Jesus, without the Savior, the person who seems to have it all, the most successful man or woman is still in bondage to sin and death. And all their possessions and all their accomplishments will not save them in the end. Same is true of someone who seems to be a polar opposite, the kid who dropped out of high school. The young man who cruises Montgomery on Saturday nights with a can of beer between his legs and his own designer PV. You know what that is? They're very popular. It's a personalized vaporizer. He might really believe that he is the king of his little world. Life is good. Life is great as long as there's enough cash for the beer, the e-cigarettes, and the next tank of gas to go cruising. By the standards of his peers, he has it all. A fast car, a sick spoiler, custom wheels, and a sound system with woofers that make the ground shake. And when I pull up beside them, make me feel like all my fillings are going to fall out. But without God, that young man, just like the successful business person without Christ is already as good as dead. The successful executive and the young man who dropped out of high school seem to be worlds apart. But without Christ, they have more in common than either would care to admit. We have more in common with them if we are without Christ than we might want to admit. There is a need that is wired into the very core of their being a need that will never be met by the things of this world, whether it is a Maserati Quattro Port or a tricked-out streetcar. What's missing is God, the God they need, the God we all need, the one who came to earth not just to be a wise teacher, not just to be a powerful prophet, but the one who came to save from death. And his name is Jesus. 
Sometimes words can be confusing. (laughs) Sometimes words have two meanings that aren't anything alike. And sometimes a word makes all the difference in the world. The eternal and living word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the word. He came to this earth on a rescue mission to save sinners like you and me and to love us. Next week, we're going to look more intentionally on what being saved from death means for us in the here and now. It certainly is a wonderful thing to know that heaven awaits us where we'll be with all the saints who've gone before us. This is a good and glorious thing. But God saves us to serve him in the here and now. And as the Spirit moves in our hearts and our minds and our homes and our lives, then this thing called sanctification unfolds. Another word that's often misunderstood, but a word that's full of meaning and hope for each one of us. But would you pray with me now? Most holy God, we confess to you that we are all sinners in need of grace and love. We admit to you and one another that we cannot save ourselves. For the danger of our sins and the reality of death is too great. So thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus, to be our Savior. He is Lord. He is our Lord. He is the way, the truth, and the life. So help us to live for you and trust you more and more each day. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen King of the world. Amen.